This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock, back again for 2024, with a look back at what hit the headlines over the silly season while we've been off the air since Christmas. Now, during what's usually a bit of a news drought, it was water leaking out in Wellington and possibly running out that filled the front pages and fired up talkback. So I'm not going to be one of these guys who go, yeah, I'm have short showers, I'm not going to water the garden or whatever. They can go and get stuff. And the sudden and startling demise of an MP also filled the news void in a big way. A mental health excuse, I don't know, I remain suspicious about this. And then there was, of course, the stuff that almost always surfaces during the summer silly season. Let's have our annual chat about shark encounters because Brody Kane, uh, who's sort of an all-round media personality these days, she was on TV for a long time, very successful podcaster, she happened to be at the beach in Mount Monganui and filmed a shark in the water and then everyone was fleeing from the water. 2024 was just one day old when News Talk ZB's Tim Roxburgh introduced what he quite accurately described as a staple of the annual summer news diet, shark sightings at the beach. And soon after, broadcaster Brodie Kane posted that fuzzy footage of a fin in the water at Mount Manganui on Instagram. It was all over the mainstream media, coast to coast, from far north to deep south. Even the far-off Otago Daily Times reported that the former TV journalist had said, in a mock TV news-style live cross, some people ran for their lives, including a child yelling that the shark was so big. But when the New Zealand Herald sought a second source on that subsequently, the Eastern Region Manager of Surf Lifesaving New Zealand told them the shark posed no danger at all. We see them all the time. It's pretty standard. On ZB later that same day, Tim Roxborough segued into another summer silly season standard. So what's your shark story and why is it stuck in your mind? Give us a bell. Okay, here's another one uh, for our January the 2nd, the public holiday that has no name, um, to get the show going. It's about the most dangerous roads in the country. Now, one year ago, the summer bulletins were studded with stories about state highways riddled with puncture-producing potholes, and there was plenty more where that came from this year. Potholes on some of the country's highways are not only worrying officials, motorists are also frustrated by the state of the roading network. They weren't marked or anything, there weren't any speed limits in force, and I sort of like ploughed into what appeared to be the biggest one. That was RNZ's summer report on the 10th of January, and that followed another lead story about the state of Highway 1 just the day before. Several sections of the country's state highways are being described as in shocking condition. The AA says State Highway 1 is the poor shop window of a network riddled with potholes. But, you know, State 1 is, is the preeminent highway in New Zealand, and uh, it's not good enough. Though when that appeared on the RNZ News site, headlined Laughing Stock, Anger Over State Highway 1 Potholes, one listener reckoned that RNZ was having a laugh with the photo in it, which was sourced from the Facebook page Northland Potholes. This photo is not State Highway 1. It's Te One Street, Ruakaka. And Te One Street's patchy potholes are indeed not part of our number one road. However, not every mayor was griping at Waka Kotahi, also known as the New Zealand Transport Agency, about potholes this summer. After State Highway 25A was sliced in two by Cyclone Gabriel last year, it became a good news story just before Christmas, when it was reopened well ahead of schedule and under budget. And the New Zealand Transport Agency 
also known as Waka Kotahi, made the most of that in a series of social media videos like this one. It's one of those things where you set yourself an impossible goal and then you achieve it and the feeling is like, yes! I mean, it's a construction of concrete and steel. Who would have thought people could get emotional about that? So having that reconnected and those families being able to get back together again has been a really big deal for our communities in general. That was Thames Coromandel District Mayor Len Salt there, though he also ended up in the news this summer for directing saltier language at some not-so-unified elements of his Coromandel community. Len Salt says he has no regrets over an email he sent out where he signed off with a rather unconventional sign-off. It was along the lines of sod off. In fact, Len Salt signed off that email response to a constituent, go F yourself, adding kind regards, Len. Now, New Zealanders usually take a dim view of abusive outbursts from people in power, so why would the upbeat new mayor do such a thing? To get this, which was essentially a threatening, abusive email, kind of made my blood boil. So I thought, I want to send a really clear message that this is not acceptable and the answer is no. (laughs) I just use different words. And Len Salt also told Anna Thomas on RNZ's Summer Time show the emailer was demanding names, addresses and other personal details of councillors and council staff. And he believed this individual was associated with the sovereign citizen movement, which doesn't recognise local government's legitimacy. According to Stuff, the email said that councillors should be liable to prosecution and were determined to coerce, deceive and enslave the local people. And when Stuff told the unsuccessful mayoral candidate who made the email response public that Len Salt's rude response had actually been endorsed by some locals on Facebook, his rival told Stuff this. But that's Facebook, where most people have half a brain and are not the smartest. Possibly not a vote-winning strategy for a would-be local politician these days. Now, if all this was a symptom of the misinformation-driven culture wars raging online, well, that also spilled over into Tim Roxburgh's News Talk ZB Talkback in the new year, like this, when the issue of local government came up. Then you'll find BlackRock hidden what, behind many of these why, why do you Why do you say elites? What does that mean to you? Well, most of the companies around the world are controlled by very few, and even like your, your radio station... You know, they're controlled by very few corporations. So it's, it's, you know, they're controlling all the time. And it's us taxpayers and ratepayers that keep paying the bills every time. So enough's enough. And caller Kevin wasn't convinced when Tim Roxburgh told him he was really not reined in on the air by any elite forces. Um, I think you know where your paycheck comes from. What do you mean by that? You don't want to burn your, your bridges, mate. But um, anyway... What do you mean by that? What, what control do you think there is over me, for example, in what I can say? You don't need to go down certain topics. What, what topics do you think I'm not allowed to go down? Oh, we know the topics that you're not allowed to go too far in because you'll be, you'll be going down But you can't say... There. And Kevin never did make it quite clear what the elites have taken off the talkback agenda. But the issue that triggered all that, by the way, was this. The famous theme gardens in Hamilton will begin charging a fee to out-of-town visitors this year. This will apply to people from outside Hamilton City. Background here is, uh, is the rates increase, I suppose, 25%. And those possible charges for visiting Hamilton Gardens also prompted a listener called Karen to get in touch. Karen says, gardens. There are many beautiful gardens in New Zealand and they are free in every town. They should be part of the council budget. And if you have a council... Oh, no, you've used the word woke. 
Why? <laughs> Do we ever stop and think how we got by without this word before? And the use of that word, in turn, triggered ZB's Tim Roxburgh. This year, if you've been someone who's described anything you dislike as woke, pause and think, what do you really mean? What do you mean by it? It's a meaningless word. And it's a word that, that it, it was African-American lingo, it was, it was black lingo, um, but it was hijacked by white right-wing America. Isn't that interesting? However, Tim Roxburgh's New Year wish for a little less woke-baiting in 2024 is likely to land on deaf ears. We have a Deputy Prime Minister who baits the media with the word. You and your ilk are on every other woke project that doesn't matter. Oh, you matter. do that all the time. Well, not every woke what does project... woke mean? Well, woke means I woke up yesterday and I know more than you. Is that your definition? <laughs> and regular commentators on Tim Roxburgh's own network spray it around with abandon too. And I wish the fourth estate would, would actually say so. They're too busy being woke to wake up. And not only do top-rating hosts at ZB love to poke the woke on the air... But it is not up to the taxpayer, for no specific or particular reason outside of a bandwagon, to foot the bill to pursue a woke ideology. And it's the return of the truancy officer, not that we want to call them that anymore, they'll be called something woke. At ZB, the hosts even team up with politicians sometimes to wage war on woke. Hey, Shane Jones, I'm with you on that. I think it's really important that those of us fight the good fight against the woke movement. What do you reckon? Oh, definitely. Segments within the media, within the managerial culture of the bureaucracy and various other features of the Beltway that are woke-struck. But while Tim Roxburgh at ZB might not get his wish on woke in 2024, what about better water? And you've got over 20 beaches were closed because of sewerage. And in Wellington, 17 beaches, which had, quote, an unsuitable for swimming warning because of surge. Uh, this is just embarrassing. Well, never mind embarrassing. It was actually, and quite literally, sickening and also predictable, Tim Roxburgh reckoned. If you were vehemently opposed to Three Waters, but you're annoyed about poo at the beach and you're annoyed about your rates having to go up to fix it, then just have a little wee think about what was going on in your opposition to Three Waters. And that's an interesting point. With the government's plan for local water done well yet to emerge, local government minister Simeon Brown wrote to councils just before Christmas to say he'll be relaxing consultation and audit requirements so that they can lock in their long-term rates and spending plans to cover the increasing costs of water. Newsroom's Jonathan Milne reported at that time the Far North District Council has pencilled in a 33% rate rise for this year, while West Coast councils were also planning 30%-plus rates hikes. Hamilton's ratepayers face a 25% increase, one of the reasons out-of-towners might have to pay to visit the gardens there, as we heard earlier. And Buller's Mayor Jamie Kleiner told Newsroom this. For those that were staunchly opposed to the Three Waters reforms, there must be some oh-crap moments now. And definitely having an oh-crap moment in the new year was the organisers of the Juicy Fest music extravaganza in Lower Hutt, cited perilously close to the misfiring sewage treatment plant at Seaview. Now, Stuff had reported that odour produced by the plant was already giving local residents headaches, and national and even international headlines were created by a council advisor suggesting that residents could be told to stop pooing. Is there anything that we could be doing uh, that would reduce the odour that's currently there while this work is? Is there anything else we could do? Stop pooing. Thank you. <laughs> I'll get. I'll, I'll let everyone know. Um. 
is there anything we can do to work in with those types of events or anything else over those over the summer period? Hope like hell the wind blows the other way. That was tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but with festival fans, it didn't go down well. But like the sewage at Seaview, it seems. But while the Seaview smell now seems to be under control, Wellington region water pipes are still a huge problem. Wellington's water woes are set to worsen as the region continues to leak millions of litres of perfectly good drinking water. Despite two record wet years, the region's underwater restrictions, no sprinklers or irrigation, and gardens must be watered by hand. That's just the beginning, though, with restrictions likely to soon increase. That was TVNZ's breakfast show last Wednesday. We're currently asking people in the capital city to prepare for a natural disaster which we knew was coming. It's called summer, frustrated economist Brad Olson told Business Desk last week. And that article's author, Dilip Fonseca, compared Wellington's water woes to the Mexican standoff at the end of Reservoir Dogs, where everyone ends up pointing a gun at everybody else, but... In the Wellington water version, nobody dies. Everybody just stands around leaking fluids and getting slowly more dehydrated. Well, if not quite Hollywood material, Wellington's water drama was certainly a good summer story for local media. Daily paper The Post got several front-page stories out of it, and Stuff even ran a live blog on it for a while, featuring galleries' worth of readers' photos of leaks on their streets. Now, the water dramas were also a hot topic for the return of ZB's Wellington's Morning Show last Tuesday. I think that it's a major public relations disaster for Wellington Water. Every time one of their officials appears on the news or the radio... All they will you talk about is that how the public aren't following restrictions. If we don't listen, there's going to be further restrictions. And in spite of that PR disaster, the show's host Nick Mills reckoned the message still wasn't getting through to some. Does anyone care or give a damn? I tell you, you know, we sent our reporter Rosaria last week to uh, uh, Vox Pop people on the street, surveys people opinions. Honestly, the vast, vast majority of people she spoke to weren't even aware there were restrictions in place. I mean, I didn't know until I started doing research for the show that we're in level two. Yeah, and, and look, you know, you can blame Wellington Water for uh, not uh, being public enough with the restrictions, but honestly, how would someone find out? We've been running stories on it, you know, yeah. for the past few weeks. The looming water crisis prompted the local government minister, Simeon Brown, to write Please Explain Letters to the Region's Mayors the evening of Friday before last, which stuff reported last Tuesday were then made public just half an hour later in a press release from the minister. Wellington's Mayor Tori Fano responded with a press release of her own. She too was sick and tired of leaky pipes, it said, before offering some useful online links on how to report a leak and how to save water at home. Though plugging the leaks with the plethora of press releases from all parties in this was not one of the suggestions. And that didn't go down well with ZB callers. These idiots have known this for years and have done jack shit about it. So I'm not going to be one of these guys who go, yeah, I have short showers, I'm not going to water the garden or whatever. They can go and get stuff as, as far as I'm concerned. With all this going on, News Talk ZB host Francesca Rudkin asked the Water New Zealand Chief Executive Gillian Blythe last Sunday, how did it come to this? Over, over, over decades, and I do really mean decades, we have underinvested. We haven't kept up with our renewals. So how many of us have put off painting our houses? And we've put them off and we've put them off because we just think we, you know, we can't afford it. We've got to manage our competing priorities for our budget. House maintenance, it's a good comparison. But is it, though? You and your garden don't actually die of thirst if paint is flaking off the walls of your house and no one in power has scrapped a national plan to paint your houses after huge political campaigns against it. 
we're going to have the repeal of the three waters. Are we back to square one when it comes to dealing with our water infrastructure? Are you losing the will to live, Gillian? <laughs> um, I think the, the, the thing that keeps me positive is that we are having this conversation and we now have a far better appreciation of how bad the problem is. Now, hearing the head of the country's largest water body say that sharing information about the scale of the problem is a sign of progress 20 years after it first became acute wasn't an especially reassuring answer, and neither was this. You know, you can have about 90% of your leaks are below the ground. They never bubble to the surface. And so you need to have information to be able to understand that. And do we at this stage? We don't have as much information as we need. Okay, cool. And we need to make sure it's transparent such that you and I are seeing it. Though the real transparency that Wellingtonians want to see is in the form of clear, clean water coming out of their taps throughout the summer and beyond. Now, while Wellington's water drama is obviously bad publicity for the leakiest little capital, the big smoke had a PR problem with water too, which also helped with the silly season news shortage. Auckland's Water Care has apologised and taken down a social media post urging women to take shorter showers after copping flack for being sexist. But was the online ad campaign really sexist, or seriously so? Well, that prompted one former marketing man to call Newstalk ZB to say it wouldn't have been a problem back in his day. We ran an ad campaign um, where a husband comes home, opens a door, and here's Shane Warne lying on top of his wife. Um, yes. And he starts chasing him around the backyard, trying to trying to get him a hiding. And the Marshall Batteries was... Uh, was a brand, and um, Warney tries to get away, jumps in the car, car won't start, um, got a flat battery, so he, he hollers for a marshal, and marshal come out and get him going just in the nick of time before the husband can get his hands on him. And, and we, had a whole, we had a range of complaints about that. Um, Will the golden age of advertising like that ever return? Now, in the end, of course, what we all really want is water when we want it, but last week, more water was the last thing many in Westland wanted when heavy rain prompted another state of emergency. Though this unnamed couple in News Hub's report last weekend, with beers in hand in their soggy lounge room, were just taking it all in their stride after their 19th inundation. 19 times, that's the 19th one. And we were just sitting here having a couple of beers. Next minute, there's a bit of a crash. The water had risen and the old chair just went, ka-doink. <laughs> And then Nick met the dogs upside down, splashing around. By 9.30, they were forced to evacuate. But thankfully, things didn't get too bad. 2.19, the water was up to here. It was flying out the windows. Last night's flood was... whatever. <laughs> and in this age of rage we seem to be living in, that kind of grace under pressure in the news was refreshing. Let's hope for more of that in 2024. The summer holidays are usually a pretty quiet time for domestic politics and a dead zone for political news even. But the unseasonal downfall of one politician and circumstances that were unexpected and almost unprecedented bucked the trend this time. Gauri's Garaman has resigned from Parliament after allegations of shoplifting in Auckland and Wellington. She's released a statement saying work-related stress has impacted her mental health and led her to act in out-of-character ways. That was News Talk ZB on the 16th of January, six days after the first reports of allegations of theft, followed days later by reports of a second and later a third instance for which the XMP was charged this week. 
Now, that latest charge related to an incident all the way back in October last year. So how did all this unfold in the first place in the media this month? What was clearly a closely kept secret broke on the subscriber-only online service of Newstalk ZB, ZB+, which also said earlier the Greens had had a CCTV recording of the alleged shoplifting for some time. The allegations also appeared on the blog and social media accounts of one Mark Spring, a blogger clearly hostile to the former government and the Green Party, judging by the topics and the tone of his posts. Now, some in the media questioned whether the allegations that were initially unconfirmed should actually have been reported in the news at the time at all. There were no charges at that time and no on-the-record statement from police or any of the shops from which she'd been accused of stealing. But no news editor could easily ignore a lawmaker accused of breaking the law who's also her party's spokesperson on justice. And the fact that her party stood her down from those roles, even before making a proper statement, was taken as a sign by the media that there was at least some fire to go with all the smoke and noise. Tēnā tātou katoa, good evening. The high-profile Green Party MP Golrīz Gaharaman has stood aside from all her portfolios after being accused of shoplifting. Our reporter Leighton Haeckel is at Parliament. And Leighton, what more can you tell us about the allegations? But back on the 10th of January, there was nothing much that News Hub's Leighton Haeckel could really add from outside Parliament, where next to nothing was going on inside. And likewise, his colleagues in the days that followed, reporting from outside the closed clothes shop in Auckland, which was the scene of the alleged crimes. Well, it's here at Scotty's Boutique in Ponsonby where Golwaz Gadaman is alleged to have shoplifted twice. Remember, there are ongoing police investigations into the allegations that have been made against her. But today, Golwaz Gadaman actually thanked the store for the, quote, kindness and empathy they have shown me. The vacuum created by the lack of comment was filled by political commentators that the media has on speed dial, like Victoria University politics lecturer Dr Bryce Edwards. You know, I think a lot of people will see this as embarrassing to have an extremely highly paid politician stealing from a very posh clothing store. And the vacuum was also further filled by political pundits criticising the Green Party for failing to fill it themselves. The longer her silence is, the worse it's going to get for her. That is an absolute reality, said TV executive turned spin doctor Janet Wilson in her weekly column for The Post. And she added, I've never heard of a political party following the wishes of a high-end frock shop because they didn't want it to come out. And that was indeed a new one. Janet Wilson also said the summer break was not actually a great time for political bad news because many people have more time on their hands to follow each daily development. And when Stuff revealed a third shoplifting allegation last week, for which Golriz Garaman was eventually charged last Tuesday, her resignation felt inevitable. It is clear to us that Ms Garaman is in a state of extreme distress. She has taken responsibility and she has apologised. We support the decision that she has made to resign. And soon after that, News Hub aired unenlightening footage of two police officers knocking fruitlessly at the front door of Golriz Garaman's Auckland home. And given that the MP has been afforded police protection in the past because of threats of violence and even death, airing images of her house was unwise. But the question really preoccupying the media was, why would an MP jeopardise a job she had appeared to relish by stealing stuff she could probably easily afford to buy? As we heard at the start, Golras Garaman said she wasn't well and the stress of her job had caused her to act in out-of-character ways. It was an explanation, she insisted, but not an excuse. Former Green colleague Gareth Hughes told Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan last Monday he'd seen some of the abuse that had come Golras Garaman's way. 
It is true, and it's a sad reality of our politics in New Zealand that the types of messages that she and other female politicians get is disgusting. Yes, but and I think the other argument is that you have to shoplift, and this is when we're getting into the intricate details of a particular psychological behaviour that none of us are qualified to talk about. But others, no more expert than Catherine Ryan, were happy to talk about it nonetheless. It's a spectacular failure, but the mental health excuse, I don't know, I remain suspicious about this. That was Duncan Garner on his MediaWorks podcast, Editor-in-Chief, this week. The former TV3 political editor, who, incidentally, quit that role citing the pressures of that job, also wrote about this for The Listener last week. He went on to say that MPs backed into a corner were playing the mental health card. Stressed? Sick? Death threats? We've heard it before from some of our MPs, so I start to question whether these declarations are more about softening public sentiment peppered with a helping of self-pity. Duncan Garner wasn't the only one who reckoned so. On the platform, former MP turned talkback host Michael Laws said this. Now, I don't know what Golruz Garaman's life has been like over the last six years, but I can tell you, in comparison to the average, ordinary, middle-income, lower-income New Zealand family member, it has been bloody good. Uh, She's got a huge salary, probably three times the average salary of this country. She has status... But while a good salary does remove one source of stress from life, having status, which has now taken a huge hit, might well actually make the strain worse for someone who's struggling. On Newstalk ZB, former political veteran Peter Dunn added this last Sunday. There's been a bit of a tendency in recent years for the mental health card to be played a little too flippantly. It's an easy excuse, isn't it? But it almost says, don't touch me, I'm sort of... um a fragile state. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm being very careful on what I say here because I don't know her circumstances. But I think uh, you know, there's got to be a, a time when people front up and face their responsibilities and face the consequences for their actions. But there certainly have been consequences. Golras Garaman's lost her job, her political future, and that so-called mental health card won't keep her out of court. In the Herald on Sunday last weekend, a former political foe, Paula Bennett, said that she too had been affected by toxic online feedback when she was an MP and... Golras wasn't looking to excuse her behaviour, but to explain it. I believe her. And even writing that would bring on another deluge of online abuse for her, Paula Bennett predicted. And perspectives like that in the media lately did spark a response from those who thought the media were letting the Green ex-MP off the hook, or at least trying to. On his blog on January the 17th, former newspaper editor Carl Dufresne said a striking outpouring of media empathy for Golras Garaman had followed her resignation, and the media were eager to justify her conduct, he said. You have to look very hard to find any mention of the irony that a woman whose parliamentary salary puts her in the top 1% of income earners resorted to theft, not everyday essentials, but of high-end fashion items. But since then, it hasn't been hard at all to find that point being made in the media, as we've heard. Meanwhile, media-friendly economist Michael Riddell went online the morning after Garaman quit to say that reading the Post that day and listening to Morning Report, you'd barely realise the MP had resigned after the reported thefts. Though the story had led Morning Report, and it was the only story on the front page of the Post, headlined, Golra's gone from political scrapper to scrap heap. The tone and the thrust of coverage was too sympathetic and skated over the offences, he reckoned. And those quoted in the Post story were mostly expressing regrets about her fall from grace and not condemning her alleged crimes. But none of it was minimising or excusing the alleged offences or defending, let alone exonerating, the ex-MP either. So who was really going soft on Golras Garaman in the media? 
with last weekend's Herald, satirical Steve Braunius spent most of his first secret diary column for the year explaining why he didn't do a secret diary on her. I suppose it would be a satire too far, given that the Green co-leaders described her this week as being in a state of, quote, extreme distress. Nothing funny about extreme distress, I guess. And coincidentally, Golras Garaman was not the only former MP due in court shortly, whose mental health ended up as the subject of national news. Kitatapu Allen's judge-only trial would consider the charges that followed the night last July when she crashed a car in Wellington and ended her career as a minister in the previous government. And this week she told TVNZ's breakfast show all about that night and she went into detail about the personal trauma she was suffering at the time. Where's that at for you now? Yeah, well, for me, I guess that's been a big part of this year. It's not just mental health. You know, I think many of us... You know, probably have different touches on that during our lifetime. At my core, service is what I was, you know, what I consider I was born to do. Serve our people, serve our community. But you can't do that unless you look after yourself, eh? It was a tough watch and raw stuff in parts that went on for more than a quarter of an hour, but was also a sympathetic interview, which wouldn't have pleased those who want more accountability from our politicians who fall down on the job for whatever reason or allegedly break the law. And after it, the breakfast show hosts reacted on air like this. Yeah. Just... Do you know that takes a huge amount of bravery oh, totally. to front up and say, yes. here's what happened. Yep. Man, that is tough. That's yep. tough for everyone to watch it and to be the person who can say, yep, that was not a great period and here's my, my bare all. Yeah. And, and, and on that note, I do want to thank Kitty Tapu for being so brave and for being courageous to tell her story. And Jenny May Clarkson told viewers it was a good thing that Kitatapu Allen can now forgive herself. But there were no questions also in that TVNZ interview about the level of support that she received or was offered by her own party or by Parliament. And there were no questions for Kitatapu Allen on behalf of those on the cyclone hit East Coast who were let down by a series of ministers resigning, or in one case defecting from the government last year. And breakfast presenter Jenny May Clarkson didn't ask about the collective responsibility that comes with being a cabinet minister, even when Kiritapu Allen herself cited that as a major source of stress before her crisis in July. Now, for the Herald, Claire Trevet did ask about the allegations of a hostile atmosphere in Kiritapu Allen's ministerial office before that so-called night of shame, and complaints that were made about her behaviour that also made the headlines, and a leave of absence which Kiritapu Allen denied at that time was for the benefit of her mental health. And when she was asked whether non-white women in politics and takatapui politicians get a rougher ride or are undermined by undue scrutiny, Kiritapu Allen told the Herald only that it needs to be looked at, adding that she never could have said so while she actually held a position of responsibility. Among those who did reckon that ordinary citizens were let down by Golriz Garaman was Stuff's National Affairs editor Andrea Vance, writing in last weekend's Sunday Star Times. MPs opening up about their experiences with mental health used to be courageous and noble, she said. Now it's just a cheap excuse for those with a casual attitude to rules that most people abide by. It undermines genuine victims, those who will go through distress at some time in their life and are met with a less forgiving reaction and an unresponsive mental health system. But on the day that Golriz Garaman quit, News Talk ZB sportscaster Jason Pine, filling in as an afternoon host, told listeners he was no expert on the psychology of it all. They can't reconcile what has happened here. So we're talking about it. 
Uh, Maria, let's move to you. You don't sound like you're driving. No, I'm just eating my sandwich. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, do you need to clear your throat? Are you okay? That's no, all right. I've been getting angry the more the more I've listened to people with their negative attitude towards this poor woman. Nobody can imagine the mental distress that, that she must be going through. It's not like normal stress. And as it turned out, it was curiosity rather than condemnation that was on the mind of most of his talkback callers. The coverage of Golra's Garaman's downfall and the reaction to it was also aired last Wednesday on RNZ National and this week's Midweek Media Watch, when Hayden Donnell and Knight's host Emil Donovan also talked about how the media handled the strong reactions to the Coalition's bid to rewrite Te Tiriti or Waitangi principles in law, or not, and the coverage of last week's Kingitanga Huyomotu at Turanga Waiwai Marae. If you missed Midweek Media Watch this week, you can find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for Media Watch for this weekend, but we'll be back with more on next week's Midweek Media Watch, now at the earlier time of 9.30 each Wednesday on Nights with Emil Donovan. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.